The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Thursday, February 17th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Oh, Camila Valieva possessing of poise and qualities that we can only admire and maybe even aspire to aspire to. Beautiful, talented teenager, sacrificed so much, came so far, and you fell on your ass and now you're out. I actually do not have those feelings. That did not reflect my actual feelings. I was just going shock jock, perhaps morning zoo for a moment to elicit a chuckle from you. But if you scowled, you are right. You are the morally superior of the two of us. I think the decision of the court of arbitration for sport was more arbitrary than it was sporting. Perhaps one day Valieva will be cleared to compete cleanly. Perhaps, like a disgraced American figure skater, she will have a biopic made of her, starring Allison Janney and a parrot. Valieva was allowed to compete in the finals despite having a blood sample that indicated doping two months ago. Everyone else who might have earned a medal was told they would not be earning a medal if Camila Valieva was to earn a medal. We'll just sort it out down the road. For Valieva, or really her trainers and handlers, she's only 15, they've been caught breaking rules, competing not for a country, but for an athletic collective that couldn't compete as a country because they broke rules. What rules? Pretty much these exact rules. But here they are, the Russians, ruining competitions because international organizations won't sufficiently punish them. But you know what? Maybe that's okay. Maybe we need even reprobates and scoundrels in the Olympics because sport is a blessed substitute for the real horrors of the world. So the Olympics feature rule-breaking Russians violating norms and trampling over the rights of others, but at least it's not geopolitics where rule-breaking Russians are violating norms and trampling over the rights of others. Why'd they even have Kamila Valieva compete? Putin could have just claimed that he always considered the woman's gold medal as an historic part of Russia and claim it as his own. Actually, it worked out for them. Russians came in first and second, Valieva fourth, so not as to cause any kerfuffle on the podium. It was an undoped trio who podiumed. If you make the podium, you've you've noticed this in the Olympics nomenclature, if you make the podium, you are said to have podiumed in the same way Putin's invasion plans tanked. Why not take a moment now, though, not to focus on doping and dopey Olympians, but to focus instead on past great Olympians like Carl, Emil, Julius, Ulrich, Salkow. That's one person, by the way. And he was the guy who invented the Salkow. It's kind of out there just waiting for him to invent it. He was a Swedish figure skater, Danish born, skated in Sweden, later owned a coffee shop there, as is the law. The Salkow is the hardest jump in the Olympics. These women have been able to complete a quad for flips, for turns, while executing the Salkow. Actually, not really executing in the case of Valieva. She fell on her bum. Anna Sherbakova, the gold medalist, she did the quad Salkow. The winners Salkowed their way to the podium. They were engaged in podiuming. The others lutzed their way to anonymity or doped their way to ignominy. Now I say let us all concentrate on the 12.5-kilometer mass start women's biathlon. Grueling distances in the snow, interspersed with moments of gunplay, a fitting way to distract ourselves from a possible ground war in Ukraine. On the show today, I spiel about the Canadian trucking convoy ongoing 
and the different coverage of it in America as opposed to recent American protests. But first, Friends in China, the TV show Friends, they've made some changes over there. Ross's wife didn't leave him for a woman. Joey's not going to a strip club. He's simply going to have fun. Rachel isn't turned on by a gravy boat. I realized that I was more turned on by this gravy boat than by Barry. She's happy to see tableware. But of course, it's not just Friends. In Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury's sexuality doesn't factor into the plot. In Fight Club, the police save the day. And in many, many Hollywood releases, nothing happens because they're not available in China. All these edits and censorship might strike us as ridiculous or oppressive. To Hollywood, they've long been a headache to work around, but now things are changing. And as Eric Schwartzel writes in his new book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, China is trying to change American exports everywhere, not just within the confines of China. Eric Schwartzel is up next. When The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind came out in 1939, you know what the Hollywood studios thought of the Chinese market? Nothing. There was no Chinese market. China was a pre-industrial country of a quarter of a billion peasants. Mao loathed Western films. Deng Ping allowed them in. But still, Jaws, Star Wars, not much of a Chinese market, really nothing. But look at Titanic. It was huge in China, made tens of millions of dollars. And in the past 20 years, Hollywood has come to rely on the massive country with a growing middle class. Now, if you're like me, your conception of Hollywood and China is probably frozen in that mindset that Hollywood needs and uses China, that Hollywood placates China so that it has access to the market. And this means we're getting more superhuman scale blockbusters to please the Chinese. That mindset is old. Eric Schwartzel is here to tell you. He writes for the Wall Street Journal. His new book is Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric, welcome to The Gist. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So let's start with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is a Marvel movie. And it's, the, it's a kind of a great movie. I mean, subjectively, I really liked it. Um, it's well done. You don't have to know all the rest of the Marvel mythos, so it's an easy way in, especially if you understand anything about Chinese culture. It was more than respectful to Chinese culture. It was somewhat bordering on worshipful, and yet interesting movie because how much it made 432 million worldwide. How much of that was in the Chinese market? He asked leadingly. Zero. Zero dollars. And you're absolutely right. Definitely a movie that was ticking a lot of boxes for Marvel, not just sort of responding to the call, the domestic call for better representation and seeing more diverse superheroes, but also very clearly a script and a movie that was expected to do gangbusters in the Chinese market. Because here you have China's most popular Hollywood franchise, the Marvel superhero movies, starring a Chinese superhero. And yet its timing could not have been worse. It came out last year as tensions between the US and China were really rising and Disney started seeing movie after movie rejected from the Chinese market. And we're in this moment right now where after a decade and a half of running toward Chinese grosses, Hollywood studios are realizing that the walls are coming up and they don't know what to do. 
And that is the state of play now. So come with me back to the past as you do in the book. And let's start off with the movie Kundun, which is uh, telling of the life story of the Dalai Lama, Martin Scorsese. Um, This holds a special place in my heart, not because I particularly like the movie, but in, I think, episode three of The Sopranos, Christopher Moltisanti sees Martin Scorsese going into a nightclub. And what does he say? Marty! Kundun! I liked it! Gives him a fist pump. Uh, that movie failed totally in the United States. And I always thought it was just because, I don't know, why, do, why would Americans want to see a story about the Dalai Lama done by Martin Scorsese? I was wrong. That's not why it failed. Why did it fail? Well, I actually, I like the movie quite a bit too. Not as not so much to sort of catcall Martin Scorsese about it, but I, li- I like it quite a bit. Um, it came out in 1997, which to your point earlier, was still a moment where no one was thinking about the Chinese market. The Chinese market was an economic afterthought. They were seeing some Hollywood movies at that time, but no one was making movies. There was no Shang-Chi being greenlit because China was going to be this big box office. And so Disney was releasing Kundin, and on the first day of its production, a call came in to Disney's Burbank offices saying, we understand you're making a movie about the young Dalai Lama, and this is going to be a problem. Now, Disney at this point has hardly any business in China, but they already have plans for a theme park, toys. There are these aspirations to get a Disney channel on the TV airwaves. And all of that business is jeopardized by the production of this one movie. And it becomes this really cautionary tale for all of Hollywood that if you make a movie, it's not enough to say, we're going to make a movie that's critical of China or that explores something China doesn't like, but we're just not going to release it in China. That's not enough. Making it at all jeopardizes access to the Chinese market, wherever it may be. So Disney has this movie being made by a subdivision of a subdivision. The executive who got the call about it in Burbank hadn't even heard of it, didn't even know Disney was making it. And suddenly he has to put out this fire that jeopardizes a two-decade, three-decade plan for the country. Well, what was China's ask? China. It was the office of censorship, right? But what was what were they saying? We don't want this movie in China or we just don't want this movie? We don't want this movie to be made at all. And, and Disney knew, to your question about why, why didn't anyone see it, Disney knew if they canceled the production, they would incur the wrath of not just Martin Scorsese, but half of Hollywood would be up in arms because of it. it's the squelching of free expression. So they decided they were going to try to find a middle ground where they released the movie, but they buried it. So they released Kundin on Christmas Day on four screens. When no one goes to see it, they use that as justification not to expand it much further. And it just dies a slow death. Nonetheless, Chinese officials still banned Disney from the market. And Michael Eisner, who was then the CEO, had to fly over about a year later and meet with a Chinese official. And there's a transcript of this meeting, which is like a book author's dream. There's a transcript of this meeting where he says, the bad news is that we made the movie. The good news is that nobody saw it. And he essentially throws this movie under the bus in order to win back the favor of these Chinese officials. And that, along with some other economic deals that Disney happened to be cutting at that time, 
help them get back into the country. And this is how autocracies work. It's not like China has to do this two, three, four times again when someone makes a movie that displeases them. Once they do it once, what studio is going to green light such a movie? And this was, it did get four Academy Award nominations. It was a well-regarded movie. It's not the case, right, that China had to come in. And, and even though you get into the tweaks they had with movies, they, they didn't really have to um, issue wholesale edicts. This movie cannot exist because, because Hollywood just didn't dare to make such a movie in the first place. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a dialectic in Chinese that translates to um, kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. And it basically means find these very public examples that teach everyone a lesson and all the better if they are examples that just sort of make everyone sit up and notice and, and say to themselves, wait, the, the Chinese officials got mad at that. Like they got mad at a movie about the Dalai Lama that wasn't even going to be released in China. That, oh, that re that recalibrates all of our calculus. Right. And, and that's why whenever you have like an actor like John Cena recording a hostage video because he get, made a comment in an interview where he implied Taiwan is its own country, like having to sort of over respond like that um, for a comment that people probably wouldn't have noticed otherwise. It just, like I said, it just sort of sends this message that really, like, if you have, if your bar is up here in terms of what you think China will get mad about, lower it by several steps. Do you think that John Cena example, and you could get more into it, um, do you think that had a Streisand effect? Yeah, this is this is a huge question in diplomatic circles right now. So John Cena, um, this was like the last flare up between uh, China and Hollywood that I think sort of broke into the, the public consciousness, which was that John Cena was promoting, I think, a, the latest Fast and Furious movie. And he gave an interview where his, his language implied that Taiwan is its own country, which is a, a rebuke to the one China policy. And I have to also say, um, maybe a sign that John Cena was not studying his his homework as well as he should be, because every actor who goes over to do press in China these days is sent with a binder that tells them these are the topics to bring up, these are the topics to avoid, and this is the language to use if certain things do come up. Um, nonetheless, he um, steps in it and has to apologize um, for, for this. He records this video that circulates where he speaks in Mandarin and he's apologizing to the to the Chinese people. Did it work? Did the kowtowing, uh, I use that phrase advisedly, did that help the John Cena Fast and the Furious movie? It did. I mean, it got, it, the, the movie was released in China. Um, we don't know if it would have not been released if he hadn't apologized, but I think that's a big part of the dynamic here as well, is that oftentimes studios find out that they will have that they will be distributed, in, their movies will be distributed in China at the last possible minute because you need to finish the movie and then send it over to the Ministry of Propaganda for approval. And that happens very close to release date. So oftentimes, a lot of the self-censorship that's happening is happening far before studios even know if a movie will get released. And so sometimes you have these examples that are like, you know, Paramount changing a scene in World War Z and then submitting it with the hope that it will be approved. And then it's not approved to be at all. So like it's the changes come for naught. And so I think that's part of it as well is there's this culture and this reflex of self-censorship now that is also 
coupled with this very strategic uncertainty, I think, on the part of the, the CCP. So this could be and has been a gigantic part of Hollywood movie making calculations. And it has made sense up to this point for Hollywood movies to chase that market. And depending on the kind of movie, Eric, what percent do they budget or uh, assume that China will give them as far as their overall worldwide box office? I mean, it's gotten to the point now where you might be able to count on more money coming out of China than in the US. I mean, that happens more frequently certainly than it used to. I mean, so the, the thing to understand is that when, a, when one of these movies, like these Marvel movies, is getting greenlit, let's say they're paying, they're going to spend $250 million to make this movie. They have a meeting where they have to say, yes, let's go, the greenlight meeting. And what they do is they say, okay, here's how much we're expecting from the US and Canada. Here's how much we're expecting from the rest of the world. And then there's a third column. Here's how much we're expecting from China specifically. Now, again, the key difference being you don't know if you're going to get into Chinese theaters. But for a lot of these movies that are so expensive, despite the fact that they get they might make $1.2, $1.3 billion worldwide, sometimes the $100, $120 million coming out of China is the difference between profit and loss. So to get access to the Chinese market, uh, Hollywood Studios will, I'll tick through a few things that they've done, and then you could either uh, go bigger or list more examples. They'll digitally remove laundry in the background of a uh, Shanghai chase scene because that is seen as uh, presenting by Chinese censors as presenting the city in a bad light. They will change the ending of a Transformers movie to, and then the central government of China saved us all. They hilariously, this broke out on Twitter, will say that uh, Fight Club did not end in anarchy and buildings coming down. It er, it ended in some sort of social harmony because of the government. Uh, it will digitally alter signs in Red Dawn so as not to implicate the Chinese as the bad guy. The Chinese aren't the bad guys in almost any big blockbuster movie. What else? What else does Hollywood do to uh, please its Chinese partners? There's even sort of deeper thematic changes that'll be, that'll be made. You know, like, um, for example, when uh, the most recent Men in Black was sent over to China, there's this, there's this device that the secret agents in Men in Black use where they can, if a civilian sees an alien, they can wipe their memories of it. And that plot detail was taken out of the film before it was released in China because it was just a metaphor that hit a little too close to home in an authoritarian culture where memories and history might be controlled. Um, so it goes from the cosmetic, like you said, the the laundry lines to to the deeper and the more the more thematic. I mean, what is I think fascinating is is that really every studio executive in Hollywood these days can read a script and sort of put the Chinese censor goggles on and say what what, what will fly and what won't. And and the really easy stuff is like anything that's going to present China in a bad light, anything that's going to show something bad happening in China. Is going to is going to be removed, but then, like I said, there's also there are still these like deeper themes or symbols that still catch people off guard. So the last thing I want to ask you about is not something that you directly cover, but I know you know about. You wrote about it in the book. It's about the NBA. So in China, there's a bit of a move to replace American movie making, sometimes with having American movie makers go over there and teach them how to do it. And they're making movies like Wolf Warrior and The Wandering Earth. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe they won't need Hollywood anymore. We'll make our own movies that we know our own people would like. 
But does that apply to the NBA? Because they do have the Shanghai Sharks and uh, other Chinese basketball teams, and occasionally a washed-up American star will go there and average 30 points. But there is no question, there is no replacing the NBA as the premier basketball league on earth. The Chinese already know this. You can't lie to them and say, you know, the Los Angeles Lakers don't really exist. Avert your eyes. So when the NBA gets into a similar fight with China, the GM of then the Rockets offended Chinese sensibilities by talking about protesters. Are they in a very different position than Hollywood is? It is It is similar in the sense that you've got this entrenched entity and then you've got China's efforts to build its own. I think, I think initially when the NBA looked to China and China looked to the NBA, the goal was to have like a thousand Yao Mings, right? To have more Chinese players playing in the U.S. That would be good for China, but it would also be really good for the NBA because you'd have these like these natural fan bases. And then that that hasn't happened. I think that one lesson that Hollywood learned is that there was this moment whenever the box office really started to come into shape around 2013 or 2014, where studios would bend over backwards to appeal to the Chinese market. It was not enough just to get into the country, but how can we goose ticket sales too? So that's when you started to see a lot of studios casting Chinese actresses in these bit cameo roles. You had bizarre Chinese product placement. There's a there's a Transformers movie where Mark Wahlberg is buying Chinese protein powder in a convenience store in Chicago. I mean, just really just bizarre and silly strategies. And eventually, the Chinese audiences, who are not dumb, saw through the pandering and said, you know, this is insulting us, really. Um, and, and I think we're at a moment now where Hollywood's realized that the best thing that they can do is make really big, good Hollywood films that you can't see anywhere else. That you, If you make a giant Marvel movie, if you make an Avengers movie, we're still really the only market in the world doing something on that scale. And China will show up because it's different and it's novel, not because it's also trying to reverse engineer some kind of appeal to Chinese audiences. And so I wonder if the NBA is in a position where the best thing it can do is try and cultivate fan bases for the NBA and not try to keep finding these odd marriages with Chinese players. But when, but you're right that whenever Daryl Morey got in trouble and then the entire NBA was kicked out, it was it was a playbook right actually right out of Kundin, right where you had this, this infraction that threatened the entire corporate whole, and and also Daryl became a very public chicken because it was a really what was like he like he liked to tweet or he tweeted something really innocuous about standing with Hong Kong, and it just completely jeopardized all those years of investment. It was another it was just another example of the infraction seem seeming relatively minor, but the repercussions being completely outsized. Eric Schwartzel is the author of Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric, thanks so much. My pleasure. And now the spiel. 
Canadian truckers remain in Ottawa and the government is reaching its breaking point. The chief of police has resigned. Residents there feel under siege and word is spreading that a crackdown is coming soon. This, by the way, is not a good way to make a point, which is reflected in the fact that so few Canadians agree with the truckers and their anti-vaccine mandate stance. It's in contrast to the mass protests that swept America in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Then Gallup showed that two out of three Americans supported the protest. It's about the inverse, almost exactly the inverse of the support the truckers have in Canada. But if you listen to voices on the right, not necessarily the far right, in fact, even some people who are among the two-thirds supporting Black Lives Matter, they complain about glaring inconsistencies with how North American media has covered each set of protesters. It's true, the coverage has been different, but let's be honest, here's the biggest difference. One was a protest for a righteous cause, the other is a protest for a stupid cause. These are my opinions, but they are a little more than opinions. Stupid is dismissive, I'll admit that. What I mean to say is, the trucker's points I do not find to be nearly as rooted in fact as the most basic point of the protest from the summer of 2020. If the BLM protest could be distilled down to one point beyond the clear slogan that Black Lives Matter, the protest said something like this, we need police reform. Different people have different ideas about how to get there, what forms of reform, how much reform, Quite a loud subset of protesters continue to reject the idea of reform in favor of abolition or defunding. But the idea that reforms were needed in policing that was clear and that was clearly popular, even though Senate Republicans did not sign on to a broader bill, they too submitted a raft of reforms. I don't know if it was a large raft or a seaworthy raft, but it would have done things like limit chokeholds. Democrats opposed it. Nothing passed in the end. My point is the protests about George Floyd were expressing an opinion that the majority, I would say the vast majority of Americans believed in. I will acknowledge there was a variety of voices within those protests, and many of the voices even contradicted each other. Summer 2020, that was about police reform. The trucker protest, that's about anti-mandating vaccines. It puts these truckers in the clear minority among Canadians, and their tactics are less popular still. So, coverage of a righteous protest is going to differ from coverage of a stupid protest in natural ways. That's not a bad thing. However, there were tactics of the BLM protests that were excused or diminished in a way I believe that makes some of the same people offering the excuses then look a bit hypocritical now. Let's take violence, which Canada's public safety minister, Marco Mendocino, won't stand for. There, there's no justification for violence. There's no justification for going out and threatening and intimidating. That seems uncontroversial, except... Back in 2020, it was a little controversial. When the violence included arson, looting fires, throwing bricks, smashing windows, sometimes that was decried by those who sympathized with the goals of the protesters, but sometimes not. Prominent thought leaders on the left redefined violence as not violence. This was New York Times Magazine writer Nicole Hannah-Jones on CBS. Destroying property which can be replaced is not violence. And to put those things, uh, to use the exact same language to describe those two things, I think really um, it's not it's not moral to do that. So, yes, I, I think any reasonable, excuse me, any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. These are not reasonable times. I do not think works well as a standard. 
Not much seems reasonable about the Canadian truckers. Should they be excused if they start smashing windows? Okay, you might say, yes, but the reasonableness or unreasonableness of the truckers is caused by the truckers, but it was being reacted to by the protesters in the U.S. Let's take Portland. How reasonable was Portland? For over a year, nightly protests included a lot of violence, using the plain understanding of violence, more violence than the Canadian truckers. One Portland protester, an Antifa member, killed a Trump supporter. It went on and on and on. Fireworks, projectiles, broken windows nightly. Portland was much more violent than Ottawa has been, but it was a fairly common talking point, even among the not very far left, that Portland was a barely significant exception. This was Jessica Yellen on Bill Maher's show. Where is this mass destruction of property happening right now? Like, if you look at... Have you watch the news? If you look at Portland, it's two square blocks. The cameras well, go to where the... Well, there's also Kenosha. There's also... Briefly. There's, yeah, for a moment. Well, it, it happens. Well, we've had it. Possible. We had it here in L.A. I mean, I, there are stories I've been to that I saw on the news wiped out. And those were moments of protest, okay. which we have throughout our history. Is uh, to, pain part of protest? Pain is protest. Does it need to be? Well, things seem pretty painful for those who have lived for weeks with horns and catcalls and the disruption of the truckers. And still, a right-wing leader tweets, to folks who complain, protest demands make others uncomfortable. That's the point. Actually, I lied. That was not a right-wing leader. That was Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez tweeting in 2020. To folks who complain protest demands make others uncomfortable, that's the point. The whole point of protesting is to make people uncomfortable. Activists take that discomfort with the status quo and advocate for concrete policy changes. Popular support often starts small and grows. I'm sure the Canadian truckers would actually sign on to all of that. So there's some logic in what she's saying. Sometimes small protests lead to big changes. Sometimes they're just horribly annoying and unfair to the people who live around the area of the protest. But it's also logical to want some consistency in endorsing protester-inflicted discomfort or decrying it. Is the consistency only to be determined by our opinion of the underlying message. Some tactics like shouting at bystanders, inflicting pain, discomfort, invective at regular citizens trying to go about their business, clogging up traffic, shutting down towns, making life miserable for people whose only crime is to live in a certain area. Those things I think generally should be rejected as incompatible with a free society, a society that's bounded by the rules of law. I believe that in Canada, and I believe that when it was happening in neighborhoods around the U.S. If a trucker were to tweet or put up a video endorsing lawlessness, he should be, would be, roundly denounced. The claims of a BLM protester like Ariel Atkins of Chicago, I think should be considered in a very similar light. I don't care. If somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike, because that makes sure that that person eats, that is reparations. Now, to be fair, I'm not telling you that Atkins' comments, which did get wide play, were celebrated by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot or Senator Dick Durbin or other members of the Democratic establishment who were down with the cause in general, just not the looting and the reparations. But these comments were a lot less roundly decried than you might expect they would be. The public radio station WBEZ ran a Q&A with Atkins under the headline, Winning Has Come Through Revolts, a Black Lives Matter activist on why she supports looting. And she did support looting. They asked her four questions. One, what's your take on the looting downtown? She was for it. Two, 
What do you say to people who argue looting undermines Black Lives Matter message? Show them buy it. Three, what do you think of the mayor's comments? Didn't like them. And what else do you think people need to know? It would be inconceivable for the public broadcaster, the CBC, to broadcast as unchallenging an interview with a Canadian trucker who endorsed lawlessness. In 2020, USA Today wrote in a news article about looting and arsons, quote, historians and sociologists said reflexively condemning the actions, meaning looting and arsons, as reckless or self-defeating, minimizes the extent of people's rage. Floyd's death has become part of an all-too-familiar pattern of confrontations between police and African Americans who lose their lives over minor offenses. For all the denouncements, there are many who say the riots are actions of those who have exhausted every other way to be heard. The truckers say that too. So what's the standard? Just to defend whoever has the better cause? And once the cause is just, to justify all expression that stems from it? It is so intellectually and ethically inconsistent to do so. Well, it's ethically inconsistent if you share an ethical code in the same universe as mine. But it's also foolish from a messaging or media perspective. If the media is to be held as a more or less fair arbiter of fact, then the tendency to excuse extremism in the pursuit of a just cause will be used against you when the cause changes. And if the answer is, well, the cause changed, then you expose yourself as not so much reporting on and analyzing actions as weighing in on the goodness or badness of actors. The truckers and the protesters should not be treated the same. The reporting on the legitimacy of each of their grievances, it's been generally good. The reporting on their motivations, look, I never mind hearing people's opinions, so I'm all for that. But when one group acts in the same way as the other group, or in the case of the truckers, with fewer overall incidents of violence than BLM protesters, and they're treated very, very differently, media and public figures mark themselves as inconsistent, as taking sides, and as rooting for outcomes and not reflecting events. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson, the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of logistics for the Eastern Seaboard for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, depru, dupru. And thanks for listening.